Welcome to the Empathetic Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Hammond. Today, I have Emily from Thanks. Emily, it's really nice to have you on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Emily, I'd love to hear just a little bit about who you are, your role in the company, and what you guys are up to. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently the VP of marketing at a company called Thanks. That's T-H-A-N-X. Prior to working at Thanks, I was a consultant with major Fortune 1000 organizations in the business intelligence space, actually, which essentially is helping businesses use data to drive meaningful impact on their business. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Thanks is a guest engagement and retention platform for restaurants primarily. So basically what we do, we empower restaurants to capture data about their customers through loyalty programs and digital user experiences like mobile apps and e-commerce sites. And then we help them with providing the tools that allow them to easily automate their marketing, making use of that data through campaigns and tactics to essentially retain their customers. Absolutely. I love that. You joined the company a few years ago, and it's always really interesting to get the perspective of a marketer that you know has is, is been around for a few years in terms of that journey. So I'd love to hear what were the initial priorities and then what evolved over time, maybe what happened this past year, and then what's going to happen next. I'd love to just hear a bit of that journey from a marketing, priorities, strategies, tactics wow. perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been with Thanks. It's crazy. It's almost been four years. I started as the head of product marketing, and then about after a year or so, became the leader of the team. So obviously, as a product marketer, my first order of business was to really try to understand the existing and potential customers that we had and that we served and what kind of problems and opportunities were there that we could solve for them. So that was my first order of business. I did a ton of research. I learned everything that I possibly could about the industry because I had not worked with the restaurant industry previously, did a lot of customer interviews. I'm not sure if you're familiar with win-loss, but basically the process of talking to customers who we had won business with and customers who we had lost business with. I try to understand why did they buy things or why did they decide to go elsewhere or not do anything at all, frankly, which was the case in many scenarios. So did a lot of that. I mean, there's obviously a lot of other things, but first order of business was get up to speed, make sure I knew the industry and I knew our audience. Absolutely. Um, and then, like I said, a year, year and a half in, I stepped into the marketing leadership role. And there, what I what was interesting is at that time, and this is quite a while ago, but at that time, the traditional B2B marketing tactics that I had seen working previously at other companies just didn't seem to work as well at things. Things like webinars and other sort of tech, email marketing, paid advertising, that type of thing. So along with my colleagues, we took a step back and looked at the audience and we said, well, like, what's different about restaurants? Like, why aren't they engaging in these channels that typically have been fairly successful? And I think there were a variety of things. We can talk about this more, but one of them is they're very sensitive to any changes that impact operations. Mm. So very much so wanting to scrutinize the technology that they buy. They've been burned before, frankly. And so there's mm. a lot of fear, justified fear of change. So that was one thing. Also, and I think this is part of that, they tend to buy based on the ecosystem. What are their other technology partners recommending? What are their peers recommending? All of that. And also the last piece was historically we had served the SMB market and we had significantly moved up market, but our brand awareness 
was still that we were a smaller SMB focused mm. brand. And so those were some of the challenges that we had to overcome. And the way that we did that was really through adjusting our marketing strategy towards more thought leadership marketing. Absolutely. So what did that look like? What were you doing that maybe before and then where did you move it to in terms of thought leadership and all that? Yeah. So I think one of the benefits within Thanks is that we had you know, a really great internal asset in our CEO. He's considered a thought leader in the industry, was already very, very well known. And so as is the case with any good marketer, they're going to look at the internal assets they have available and try to leverage them. So we did a lot of thought leadership that took advantage of our CEO as an asset. Like I said, he was very well known and established in the industry. We launched a podcast, my first time ever doing a podcast, which I have a lot of empathy for podcasters now because it's a little bit tricky to learn, but we launched a podcast called Food Fighters. We were already really well connected in the industry. So getting high profile guests was actually the easy part. And so that I think worked really well. We also created just a few pieces of really high quality thought leadership content, one of which went viral within the industry. And I think that really helped propel us. We created a forum, like a community forum for our audience so that they could talk to each other and learn from each other. And then we did as many speakerships at events as we possibly could. So really leveraging the internal assets that we had, the quality of our thought leadership, and just trying to broadcast that across as many channels as possible. And, and then we killed off webinars, ads, and most of our SEO initiatives because we're small teams. So can only do so much. Yeah, totally. So you guys have had this whole journey, this evolution of what the marketing strategy looks like. What does it look like today? And then where are you moving it towards as we head into the next year? Yeah, it's funny because now fast forward, I guess it's been another two, two and a half years or so. A lot of those B2B tactics that we had decided to turn down, well, those are now working again. And so as you're moving up market then, basically, as we're moving up market. And then the other piece is that the industry has evolved significantly. Mm. The sophistication of our buyer from a technology buying perspective has accelerated massively. And that's the result of COVID. So you think about what happened in the restaurant industry when COVID hit, many of those businesses were not prepared for what happened. And the primary thing was they weren't prepared for essentially digital ordering. All of a sudden, people wanted to order from online. They didn't want to come into the store. They didn't want to be in physical contact with a staff member. And their phones were overwhelmed. And the only way that they could sustain their business during that time was to be able to transact orders online. And so if you didn't have an online ordering system, you bought one. I mean, even like fine dining places you would never imagine were using a variety of providers to transact orders online. I think through that process, they learned a lot about how to buy technology quickly. They learned a lot about how to transform their business quickly. And like that fear of change which again was very much justified, didn't have a choice. And so I think that really accelerated things. And then with digital comes data. So what historically had been the challenge, which was I have no data. Most of my customers come in store. Maybe my staff recognizes them, but I have no idea who they are broadly from a corporate perspective. Now, all of a sudden, if they're doing things right and they're capturing that data about their online customers, they're just flooded with data. Mm. And so now it's like, I have this resource. I want to make use of it. And so the data that they had available made it really easy for them to start doing more personalized marketing, start knowing who their customers are, building relationships with them. And I think 
that really, I mean, that's what thanks enables. And so for us, all of a sudden, what we had been talking about for years went from a nice to have to a need to have. And mm-hmm. at the same time, our buyer had become more sophisticated. Now they're on LinkedIn. Now they're looking for information about these types of technologies online and they're doing all these things. So like now all of a sudden, there's a lot of interest in webinars. There's a lot of, you see an ad, you know what it's talking about and it's highly relevant to what you're looking for. And so I think it was just a timing and a sophistication thing primarily. Our webinars, events, like, these things, you're bringing them back? Like, What's the strategy as we head into the new year? Yeah, so events really never went away for us. It's really an opportunity for us to showcase our thought leadership. So that's always been part of our strategy. And webinars, yes, webinars are back in a big way. What we found is that while historically loyalty programs have been kind of a dirty word, it was associated with discounts. All of a sudden, this ability to do more data-driven marketing, this interest in doing more targeted marketing, it brought back to light the value of a loyalty program, but many brands didn't want to associate with themselves with discounts. And so we saw that as an opportunity in the market. We saw that brands were really wanting to do things like experiential rewards, rewards that offer access and exclusivity instead of discounts. And that... Uh, gave us an opportunity to solve a problem that none of our competitors were solving. And so we set out to actually completely revamp our entire loyalty engine and design it in a way that allowed us to offer programs that weren't heavily reliant on spend X, get Y, do this, get that, which are very expensive, actually. And so we sort of found an opportunity in the market And we've just been talking about that. And the reality is everybody wants information about it. Everybody's thinking about it and kind of just found a really good hook, I guess, is what I'm describing. And so we've been using that as our primary way of communicating with brands. And a lot of our webinars, a lot of our content, actually a newsletter that I launched is all about this topic and it has been very successful for us. Interesting. So when it comes to even reaching out and connecting with these buyers, I think you mentioned LinkedIn. So is that Mm -hmm. a primary driver of promotion and stuff of the webinars and all that? Yeah, yeah. I really like LinkedIn as a channel. (laughs) It's funny because I really was not maybe as open as I should have been to LinkedIn ads and just paid advertising in general. We just hadn't seen the value historically. And so my team who I owe everything to, they do a fantastic job. They basically said, we got to try this, Emily. We think our audience is back on LinkedIn. Let's just give it a shot. And they convinced me, we allocated some budget to it. And it's actually been working really, really well. So we obviously do own content. We post about various things that are going on. Our CEO just won an award yesterday with QSR for digital disruptors. So we're posting about stuff like that, of course. And then we're also now running advertising. And we actually just saw our first deal come in from some ads that we ran a couple of months ago. And so we've got positive ROI now on our ads that's directly attributable, which helps. And so, yeah, yeah, leaning into LinkedIn ads as well. That's good. So as you're making this shift and and evolving and changing the marketing engine, any other things you've learned or advice you might have for others out there listening today? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a little hard for me. It's a lesson that I've learned I tend to be a bit of a perfectionist. I want, I never want a typo to be in a piece of content that has my name on it. That's horrifying for me. But the reality is the younger generations have been creating content since they were nine years old. And 
we live in a world where there's just so much content that if we're not talking to people on as many channels as we can and doing it in a way that allows us to be very nimble and part of those conversations, then we're just going to miss our audience. I mean, that, there's no silver bullet. So you kind of have to be everywhere. How do you be everywhere when you've got a really small team? I mean, our team is just three of us. So we have learned and gotten in the habit of just doing a lot of stuff and being okay with making mistakes. And I credit my team for this because they do all the heavy lifting. So we've been trying like really low production video content. We just make the videos ourselves or we have an agency that yeah. we work does it you know at a really low cost. Just getting content out there like I'm not reviewing any of our social posts to make sure that there's no typos before they go out. We just send them. Throw them out there. And, yeah. <laughs> and the reality is nobody notices that stuff except for us. And so it's been a practice. We actually, one of our goals, I think it was Q1 of this year. I said, let's just do one piece of content a day. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be two sentences in a LinkedIn post. It could be a comment on a thought leader in our spaces post on LinkedIn. It could be an actual full piece of content. And I think that really helped. It helped us build the muscle of just iterating quickly and putting stuff out there. And now we don't have that specific goal, but it, I think it was helpful in getting us into the frame of mind of just doing a lot of different things. I think the other one is there's no one channel that's going to work. Like my reality, as I mentioned, was the things that worked a year and a half ago are no longer the things we're doing now because the industry has changed. And so yeah. how do you build that framework or mindset of experimentation, creating a hypothesis, being nimble? And it's really, I mean, frankly, it's really, really hard because you want to be data-driven, but attribution <laughs> is a difficult oh, yeah. thing to do. And to do it correctly takes time. And so how do you make sure your strategy is the right strategy based on data while also executing and being really nimble? And I think it's just an ongoing battle, frankly, <laughs> to try Absolutely. to keep doing that. Well, on that note, Emily, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Really appreciate your wisdom and insights here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely.